Hello and welcome to the latest Racing News 365.com Formula One podcast episode. My name is Balf Baines and by my side, as always, are Asian correspondent Michael Butterworth and editorial director Dieter Renkin. Michael, I don't know about you, but my light has lacked meaning this week with no races happening over the weekend. Yeah, we're, we're at the beginning of that lull, aren't we? The unexpected uh, early season hiatus, four weeks between uh, Melbourne and Baku. But uh, I'm sure the, the engineers and the designers and the mechanics are, are working flat out back at the factories to try and get uh, their inventory of parts up for Baku and to try to bring as many updates to Baku as possible. We know McLaren have been talking about their updates and I'm sure that several other teams are going to want to have new bits on the car every uh, the next time we, uh, we go race racing in Azerbaijan. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Dieter, how are you? I um, know you've had a, a busy week. Yeah, yeah, it's been busy. I mean, motorsport is effectively, you know, uh, our website, Racing Youth 365, the 365 actually stands for non-stop action. <laughs> and there's always something going on in Formula One. So you may not be trackside or you may not be traveling, but ultimately there's always something bubbling under. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's been a quiet period from a sporting perspective, but believe me, politically, financially, commercially, it's been all go anyway. So, so really makes no difference. Above all, I think the, the big thing is that we need to look at this particular break almost as an additional break during the season. And I think there could be a lesson in it for Formula One when it comes to the so-called winter break. We do have a summer break in July, August. They're now talking about another break um, in, in winter. And I think this is a bit of a foretaste of that. Yeah, no, this, uh, because of the Chinese, obviously, Grand Prix as well, that's been cancelled. So we do have this big break. Lots to talk about, like Dieter said. So let's get cracking and let's get this party started. Michael, we've heard the Ferrari team principal is a little bit unhappy with the Red Bull budget penalty. Yeah, so uh, so this is the news that Fred Vasseur uh, a few days ago said that he thought Red Bull's uh, penalty for breaching the cost cap was too light. So this, of course, is the $7 million and the 10% reduction in their allotted wind tunnel, wind tunnel testing time. Uh, Vasseur said that uh, you know, if you consider that we can improve the car's performance by uh, about one second over the season in terms of aerodynamics, and then the penalty is one-tenth of this, then he said, you know, this is equivalent to a loss of 0.1 seconds. And I remember Christian Horner, ever since the penalty was announced, has perhaps predictably called the penalty draconian and said how badly they're going to be affected by all this. Um, and uh, it's not really it's not really a very convincing argument when you see how how much further ahead uh, Red Bull are than everybody else this year. It's likely that the penalty wouldn't have affected the 2023 car because they probably would have already designed that when the penalty was given. Uh, maybe will, will it affect the 24 car and the 25 car? Maybe. But I mean, if you assume that Red Bull are the class of the field this year, and then we're going to another couple of seasons after this where we're not expected to see any major regulation changes, you have to assume that Red Bull would be among the favorites for 24 and 25 as well. In terms of the, the $7 million, well, that doesn't come out of the budget cap and a company like Red Bull, that's a drop in the ocean for them. So, uh, you know, it's not really, really, it's not really very damaging. So I, I think I'm inclined to agree, or I, I certainly sympathize with, uh, with, with Fred Vasseur's point. And I think when you have a, when, when you have a punishment like this, it needs to act as a punishment for the team that has committed the crime and a deterrent so that the team and another or and every other team don't do this again in future. And if F1's lawmakers are serious about ensuring that teams stick to the budget cap, instead of issuing financial penalties, which the big teams can suck up very, very easily, maybe they want to think about points that, uh, points deductions, because that's where it's potentially really going to hurt these teams rather than 
a financial penalty that's a drop in the ocean for one of these one of the larger outfits. I, I must confess that that I, I do hear Michael, but equally, I, you know, I I think that there are three sides to every story in Formula One, and you know, there's his side, the other side, and then in the middle there's the truth, and you know, I think that somewhere along the line there there is an element of truth on both sides. I do believe that the penalty was fairly stringent. The mere fact that that Red Bull were able to develop their 2023 car the way they have. I think bears testimony to, above all, the skill of uh, Adrian Newey, arguably the best race car designer that Formula One has ever had. And so I, you know, I think that he was able to overcome some of the restrictions. Equally, I do agree with Michael that the, um, any financial penalty should actually come out of the budget cap, if not the full amount, certainly the overspend amount, because you have overspent, therefore take it out of the current cap. That I agree with. But equally, when it comes to figures of, you know, 0.1 of a second, whatever, I think these are very, very vague. Ultimately, um, you know, we, we talk about a second uh, per, per year in terms of development. Well, I've seen a lot more than that in some instances and a lot less in other instances. And we shouldn't forget that this particular uh, uh, formula that we currently have is still very immature. It only came in last year. So the teams are still getting to know and understand the cars. And therefore, you start making bigger, bigger steps. Um, as the, the regulations mature, the car designs mature under the regulations, so I think it will be more difficult. So you, you literally have a lot of low-hanging fruit in the early stages. Later on, it will become a lot more difficult. The, the big thing is that no penalty is ever going to suit anybody. We see it in civilian courts where somebody's been wronged financially and whatever else, and they're complaining that the judge didn't give them enough, um, enough leeway. Others are saying he was too stringent. You're always going to have this depending on which side of the fence you're on. So yeah, there, there, there is some, some merit in um, incorporating the overspend certainly in the budget cap, deducting it from the current budget cap. But equally, uh, yeah, I think that the FIA had a very, very difficult situation. It was the first year under the budget cap. It was a bit vague at the time. Um, and, you know, they didn't know exactly how to mark everything down, etc. I think that as we move forward, first of all, there's going to be a lot less, if any, uh, overspend because people have now seen the effect of it. And number two, although seven million is a drop in the ocean, believe me, it really stung the Red Bull reputation. And I think that's that's the, the biggest hit that they took. You mentioned change to their detail. We're hearing news of F1 Sprint Weekend. The format's going to change there as well. Uh, yes, uh, Belve. You know, this is again... <laughs> It, it takes me back to 2010, 2011, when Peter Sauber had been, been out of Formula One effectively, although he was still with the uh, Sauber team, it had been bought 75% by BMW, their management had taken over the sort of day-to-day -day running, and he was effectively then an ambassadorial role. Then BMW decided to, to withdraw from Formula One, and he then bought the team back. And I did an interview with him in Monaco shortly after he bought the team back. And he'd really been out of Formula One for about three or four years. And I said to him, Peter, tell me what has changed in the period that you've been away? And he said, before I answer that question, I will, um, I will tell you what hasn't changed. 
And he said, and that is Formula One's inability to take a lasting decision until the very, very last minute when it is forced into a compromised situation. And therefore, the regulations generally are the worst they could have been. And again, you know, we've been we've been hearing about the sprint race thing in Baku for, for a long time, a change to qualifying, all sorts of things. So what does Formula One do? They wake up in Saudi, effectively one race ahead of the of the Grand Prix. And that's when they say, oh, we want to change the qualifying. We want to experiment with this, that and the other. In the interim, what I'm hearing now is a situation where Pirelli may not be able to actually uh, deliver enough tyres for two qualifying sessions. Therefore, there's now the, do we have it or don't we have it? We have the sort of semi-shutdown. So some people are off on holiday, etc. And, you know, Formula One really for a global sport actually needs to get its ducks in a row and take decisions early enough for uh, Formula One to actually grow and develop properly. It's all very well having booming TV numbers, but you know, when the house is creaking, that's that's not a healthy sport. Yeah, Dieter, we were speaking offline and you mentioned a really good point about the governance process following on from, from the sprint race. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, the you know, the governance process used to the Formula One Commission used to consist of all teams representing that the um, engine supplier of a team not in Formula One. So, for example, Honda. Um, you'd have the tyre supplier, you'd have the fuel supplier, you'd have a representative from the sponsors, from the circuits, etc. That was all done away with because possibly, you know, the powers that be, and here I must be very, very blunt, the president of the Formula One Commission is actually the CEO of the um, of the uh, commercial rights holder. And the governance process, the way we have it now, was effectively, effectively, um, amended at the request and recommendation of Formula One rather than the FIA. And basically what they did is they did away with all non-team representation. So all you have today is the teams, FIA and Formula One, and they take the decisions. And in the process, they take certain decisions that ha- that impact on the tyre supply, the fuel supplies or whatever, but they're not represented on the commission. And that's why if we do not have this change to the qualifying format, the Formula One Commission has only itself to blame because they didn't have tyre representation on there. And therefore, fundamentally, the tyre supplier was caught unawares. Let's not blame Pirelli. I can really see, ah, Pirelli can't supply tyres. Well, I'm sorry, they need a lead time. They're, they're a manufacturing outfit. They need a lead time. And you know, that's it. So moving on to other news, Charles Leclerc has posted about his privacy concerns on Instagram stories there, Michael. Yeah, so uh, just uh, just the other day, he revealed that his home address uh, had been made public. And so he then had people gathering outside his apartment, ringing his doorbell, asking for pictures and autographs. And uh, he, so he, he wrote a letter ex- expressing his appreciation for their support, but he requested them to, you know, respect his privacy, refrain from visiting his house. Uh, he said that, you know, he would make himself available for the fans whenever they come to see him on the streets or at the track or whatever, but he's, he wouldn't be coming downstairs if they visit his home. 
and uh, he's he's been in the wars a little bit, uh, Leclerc, lately. His watch was stolen um, in Italy last April. Italian police actually last week announced that they had arrested a few people uh, who, who were wanted in connection with that theft. That also rings fairly true with Lando Norris. He had his watch stolen after the Euro 2020 final at Wembley Stadium uh, in 2021. There's a trial currently ongoing in the UK uh, regarding two people connected with the case. Um, and th- th- this sort of highlights the need for a bit of church and state separation here. We obviously in the last few years have seen huge increased fan interest in Formula One. Um, it, it, obviously, Netflix Drive to Survive is helping with that sort of popularity as well. But the drivers, you know, they need to have their privacy as well. And I, I'd be quite intrigued to know how his address became public knowledge. Is this people following him home and, and then leaking where he lives? And then, you know, or you get all these people maybe undesirable um, people hanging around his house knowing where he lives. If you, if you draw a, a parent, if you draw a parallel with football in, um, in England, in the Northwest of England, especially in the last few years, we've seen a spate of footballers being uh, their homes being broken into. And a lot of the time these gangs, you know, it's quite an organized sort of, these are organized gangs who know exactly when these players aren't going to be there, especially if they're away playing in Europe for a few days. Well, if you apply that to formula one, you know, these, guys are on the road more often than they're not. So it's a potentially very serious situation when their private addresses are being made public like that. I can remember as well in 2015, Jensen Button and his then partner were robbed while they were asleep. And it was rumoured, I'm not sure if this was ever confirmed, but it was rumoured that uh, an anaesthetic gas was uh, had been pumped through the, the air conditioning system and then they were robbed while they slept. So it, it's obviously, it's there are potentially very, very serious consequences here to, to people's personal property and personal addresses being made public like this. Yeah, I, I must agree with you on that, Michael. But but equally, you know, I think if we have a look at, at Charles Leclerc's situation, he lives in an apartment in Monaco, I believe. And, you know, Monaco is a very, very small place. All you've got to do is go down the road to go and buy a loaf of bread or whatever, which, of course, he's entitled to do. And he's immediately going to be spotted. And it's very easy to follow because, you know, the, the traffic moves very slowly. In most instances, people are either walking or on scooters or whatever the case is. It is very, very unfortunate. And I certainly feel for him. Um, unfortunately, I think, as you say, this is this is part of the, um, yeah, the, the, the F1 boom, where suddenly everybody who's got a, a Netflix account believes they own the sport, they own the drivers, they own the teams, they own the sponsors. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody wants a slice of it, etc. And uh, you know, this is very unfortunate, particularly in this day and age where nothing remains secret for very long. You know, the minute one person's found it, he sticks it on the internet and the entire world sees it. Whereas, you know, back in the day of Jody Schechter, who lived in Monaco, for example, so what if somebody saw him? First of all, if he did go knock on the door, um, I'm certainly not suggesting that, that, that Jody would have thumped him, but he would certainly have given him a lot of lip um, and that would have been it. There was no internet for the guy to say, "Oh, I know where Jody Schechter lives, and this is what you know. This is his address, etc." This is an unfortunate part of, of modern living, and uh, it is extremely concerning and perturbing. And when you know, I, I saw Charles's note, and I, I thought it was very, very well written. Where he said, "If you ask me politely in the street, yes, I'll sign, but don't come to my house." And I fully agree with that, absolutely and totally. And, you know, we see it a lot more in the paddock nowadays. The paddock used to be a sanctuary for the drivers. Yes, when they walk from the car to the paddock gate, uh, you know, etc., airports and whatever, 
they were obviously approached, but the paddock used to be an area where they were just not harassed. People respected that this is a working area. We saw last year in Mexico where, where Liberty Media had opened the paddock to all and sundry. I mean, effectively, if you had 5,000 bucks or whatever it was, you were in the paddock. I mean, it was, it was mayhem. And the drivers rightfully com- complained that, you know, they, they, they couldn't even walk from the garage to the, the hospitality unit without being accosted and, you know, all sorts of things stuck in front of their, their faces and sign here, sign there. And when they said, no, I'm in a hurry, they got abuse. And, you know, th- there's got to be some reasonable convention where, yes, I fully understand. I'm a fan first and foremost, which is why I do what I do. I also collect autographs and whatever, but this has to be done respectfully. And I don't believe that the modern generation, the, the, the Netflix generation, is really doing it respectably. I think that's the main thing as well. That respect is is not there, Dieter. So I appreciate to both of you uh, for sharing your views. Uh, no races for a few weeks, obviously. So back over the next race on the 30th of April. We'll be back next week with all the latest updates from the world of Formula One. We'll see you then.